this Sunday we have a very special guest with us. Uh, his name is Zane, and he's from the Vine, which if you're following the Three Strand Church, which is the map of churches we are part of, or the map, the, the network of churches we are part of, you follow the map, uh, they're the most immediate north of us. Uh, uh, he and his family had been part of our church at one point in time, and we've kept in touch over uh, since since they've moved on, and uh, he's a guy who's developing and working as a preacher and developing in that skill, and so it's our pleasure to have him preach for us today. Um, in uh, a week, we'll do 2 Corinthians. We'll start in, and we'll work our way through that book, um, and this week, we're blessed to have him work with Colossians for us. Uh, it's a really important thing and a really valuable thing we do as a church uh, to bring people in uh, who are learning and growing and and, and and beginning to flex those preaching muscles. It's a really important gift for us to have guys who are developing as preachers. This is his first sermon with us today. Uh, so we are very, very blessed and privileged uh, to have him uh, preach from God's word for us. So I'm going to pray for us, and then he will open uh, the word of the Lord for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, we do thank you for this day, for your power and for your might that has brought us together uh, as a people unified around your cross and your resurrection. Uh, I pray today for Zane as he opens your word that what is of him would just be forgotten, but that the things that are of you would just shine. Uh, that it is a mighty thing to stand and open God's word and say, this is what God says. And so I just pray for him now, Jesus, that you would send him the Holy Spirit, that that Holy Spirit, you would fill him, you would guide him, you would lead him, and you would help us to hear, Lord Jesus, what you have for us today, and that together both he and us would love you and worship you and glorify you more today uh, because mm -hmm. of, of the word that will be preached here. Yeah. Jesus, we love you, and we pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. Good morning. Um, as, as Andrew said, uh, this is my first time preaching, and... I'm really thankful for the opportunity when Andrew uh, wrote me and, and asked if I'd be interested in preaching. I was, I was grateful because I do desire to be uh, a pastor one day, and that includes, if not often, at least occasionally, I think, preaching the Word of God. And, um, and so I'm very grateful to be able to, to preach to you all, but more than just the, the selfish nature of, of wanting to learn and grow my own um, skills, I'm really excited to preach the Word of God to you guys specifically. Uh, I have a heart for Anchor, Anchor Church. You all um, mean a lot to me, and maybe some of you guys recognize uh, my wife and I, maybe not. But we, were, we came to Anchor only for a short amount of time. But um, when we were looking for churches in the area, when we came to Anchor, we knew uh, we loved Anchor and we wanted to make Anchor home. And we started attending for many reasons, one being the proclamation of the word and um, how central it is to all that you guys do and how, um, how it wasn't about aesthetics or being cool or, um, or trying to put on any sort of show, but the gospel is important to you all. And so to get to preach to you all is, um, is something that is encouraging to me. My wife and I we're going to become members at Anchor, and then um, the morning I met with Andrew about that later on in the afternoon, we got a call from um, a friend, old friend and pastor that said he was planting a church. So we end up going, being part of that, but um, we left Anchor so excited about it, and I still occasionally email Andrew and ask questions and um, just keep in touch with how you guys are doing because I'm 
thankful for you guys and um, thankful you're giving me this opportunity. So let me pray and then um, we can go into the word of God together. Jesus, you are glorious and wonderful and um, have absolute authority and power. And as I try to um, use my words to exclaim that today, I know they will fall short of what the reality of that is. And so I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to um, work in our hearts to see you as beautiful and as having all authority. And that when we see your authority and we see the fact that you came for rebellious sinners instead of rightly judging us, that we would worship you. I pray that I wouldn't be up here just reciting words that I've been practicing over the past week, but that my heart would be for you and for these people and that I would exclaim out of um, a love for you and a desire for them to know you deeper. I pray if anyone doesn't know you, that they would see your majesty and your beauty and your humility and that they would worship you because of it. And all of us who do love you would be further awed by your glory, and your love for us. In your name we pray. Amen. So I am preaching on Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Um, you can go ahead and flip there if you have a Bible. And um, I'm going to give a little context of where we're at before I get into the verses. So um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote the book of Colossians, and he wrote it to the church of, um, in Colossae. And he wrote to them, and in the very first start of the, of the letter, he instantly starts um, praising God and telling them how grateful he is to their, um, their faithfulness, to their love, to all that the Holy Spirit's doing in them, all that the gospel is doing amongst them. And then, um, and then as in chapter 2, he has some concerns for them. He has some concerns that they're believing the wrong things, that they're hearing the wrong things, that they're putting their faith in the wrong things. And he, in chapter 2, wants to correct them from that. So he tells them that they're being deluded by persuasive arguments and that they're being taken captive by philosophies and empty deceits according to, tra to traditions and elemental spirits. And he also says that listening to people insisting on, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, and they're going on about visions. And so they're paying attention to all these things that are captivating their mind instead of what he desires them to do is to look and search in Christ for all treasure and wisdom. He, he says that he hopes they will be rooted and built up in Jesus and that they will hold fast to the head. So Paul has this desire that they would not be distracted by these human teachings, by human teachings, by these human philosophies, by all these things that can vie for their attention, when that their attention and their worship belongs to Jesus. And so Paul is going to get into that, but I believe the verses we're in now is Paul exclaiming and giving a big view of Jesus so that when he corrects them, they have something to hold on to. When he tells them to hold fast to the head, I think the verses we're in now, these six verses, verses 15 through 20, are so important so that they know who that head is. If you have a big view of Jesus, you have a correct view of Jesus. And to hold fast to Jesus, he needs to be big. To, to allow him to 
dethrone all these little idols in our lives, all these concerns in our lives, so that we might hold fast to him, we need to see him as he truly is, as big. If we see Jesus as small, we will not be able to hold fast to him. If we see Jesus as, as small, we have a wrong view of Jesus and we'll be easily distracted from worshiping him and holding to him and looking to him and all these other things in, in our lives will take preeminence in our lives rather than Jesus. So let's read these verses together and um, just see this picture Paul is painting of the true Jesus, this big Jesus, this one that we are to hold fast to. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So what we see here, I see here a divide between the first three verses and the second three verses. I see the first three verses exclaiming how big Jesus is over all creation. And the second three verses I see narrowing down a little bit and seeing, yes, Jesus is big over all creation and he's the creator, ruler, sustainer over all creation. But he's also particularly involved in caring for his new creation. We see Jesus as big and ruler, sustainer over all creation and ruler and sustainer and creator over his new creation, the church, and then how he responds in history based on that. So I'm going to get into the first three verses, and then we are, uh, and then I'll just talk through them, and then we'll get into the second three verses. So I'm just going to go through, um, you know, kind of phrase by phrase, and we'll, we'll see what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say to the Colossians, and then how, what that means for us. He is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus, the Jesus we see in the Bible, is the image of God. So that means what is true about God that we read in the Old Testament, when we read that God in the Old Testament is holy, when we read that God is righteous, that God, um, we read that God has all power and all, all authority, we know that is true of Jesus because he is the image of that God. But the reverse is also true. Hebrews Hebrews uh, 1, verse 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. And that's our Old Testament understanding of God. But in these days, he has spoke to us by his Son. So what we know about God in the Old Testament, we know applies to Jesus. But the reverse is true. What we know about Jesus, what we see revealed in Jesus is true about the Father, and is true about the Holy Spirit. So what we read in these next verses is true about the entire Godhead. If we read about Jesus' creation, about his humility, about his love for his church, we know that is true of God. So I want to get into these next verses and read who is this God. He is the firstborn of all creation. 
So Jesus, firstborn there, is meaning ranked first. Jesus ranks first above all creation, that he has authority over all creation, that he is supreme over all creation. What I don't want us to read when we read firstborn is to do what the heretics and what um, cults have done over history and think that Jesus was actually born, that he wasn't eternal, that God the Father may have created Jesus first and then through that um, Jesus created everything. But the word firstborn there, that's not what that's meaning. To understand in the context what firstborn is saying, we have to understand in that day what was implied by the word firstborn. Firstborn was the firstborn son in that day was the one who, who got the inheritance from the father. The firstborn son was the one who, who got the power and authority over the father's estate and over the father's business when he passed it on. So it's saying here that Jesus, coming down as a man, he looks humble, he looks meek, but he has the same rights as the father. He's the firstborn. He's the inheritor of the rights of the father. In... Um, the best example we have in Scripture that I know of, that we have in Scripture of this, um, that it's not saying that he was born first, but that he ranks first, is um, Psalms 89.27. And it says, this is the psalmist recalling what God says about King David. He says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So we see David wasn't the first king ever born, but God was doing something special through David. He was making him the highest of the kings. So the word firstborn is not that Jesus was actually born. We know he is eternal God, the image of the invisible God, but that he ranks first. And by him, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we see this Jesus created all things. We get a couple categories there that he created heavens and earth, visible and invisible. So we see Jesus created all of creation. Jesus created out of nothing everything in creation. He created the trees and the plants. He created our earth. He created the stars and the solar system and the entire universe. And Jesus also didn't, not only created out of nothing, but he created out of providence. It says that Jesus creates thrones and dominions and rulers and authority. So he didn't just create things and step away, but Jesus the creator created all things out of nothing and then continues to create through an intimate involvement in his, in his creation. And I'm sure that Colossians, was, we're reading this from Paul, who is in jail in Rome at this point in time, and might have been a little confused. So this Jesus is creating these authorities, and these authorities are persecuting our pastor, and our pastor is in jail at this moment when writing this letter. And so it's a good thing in here it says that he, he created all things through him and for him. Because God's creation, and particularly his providence in creation isn't necessarily for you and I. It's, it didn't look like it was for Paul and the Colossians, at least for their external happiness, because Paul was in jail. The Colossians had never met Paul. 
And they probably wanted to know this apostle that God was using so faithfully. And Paul wanted to be among these people that he could, instead of writing a letter, he could have been among them. But Jesus was creating this for his own glory. One way that might be easy to perceive that is he wrote a letter instead of talking to them, and we get this letter now. Now, there's probably many other ways that God was using it for God's glory that we just don't know, but God works in our lives in ways that are for him, and so we can trust him because he created all things for his glory, and he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So not only is he created and he's in and amongst it, but he's holding it together. Jesus is holding together our lives that may feel like they're falling apart, and, they're for his, and it's for his glory. And it doesn't mean it's not painful. It doesn't mean it's not we wish it were different. And it doesn't mean, um, it doesn't mean that we have to pretend that we're excited about the way God's doing things. But God is holding all things together. He's holding all things together in our lives, but he's also holding our world together. If you know that um, scientists say if the tilt of our earth was slightly different or if the, the rotation of our earth varied, that life wouldn't be sustainable here. And God is holding that together. We don't have to be concerned that we won't have a place to live as long as he desires us to have a place to live on earth because he's holding it together. I used to teach kids ministry, and the illustration I used for, for this example was um, I grabbed a bunch of refrigerator magnets, and I put them positive on positive, negative on negative, positive on positive, negative on negative, and I can only do it like four of them because otherwise it starts slipping in my hands. But if I could hold them together, and they were in the, they were in the design I had created them. But the second I, I let go, they would repel apart from each other. And so I, I picture God holding all things together in a, in a manner similar, that he places things as he desires, and they may feel like they are pushing against each other, but God is in control. And that's this big view of Jesus we get. We get this view of Jesus being huge, holding together all things, holding together the entire universe, the entire cosmos, the universe that makes earth that we live on look like a speck. We can feel odd by looking out at the ocean. We can feel odd by looking up at a mountain or at the stars, which make us feel small. But in the grand scheme of the universe, the whole earth is small. And this God is holding all that together. And he is altogether majestic. And he has all authority. And then he zooms down. And he's ahead of the body of the church. Now that should be assumed that if Jesus is ahead of the body, or ahead of all things that he would be ahead of the church. But there's a particular Jesus love that Jesus has for his church. Jesus loves his church, and he wants us, through the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul to write this, to know that Jesus is head of the church particularly. The church is those who have been bought and ransomed by the blood of Christ. The church is those that have acknowledged their guilt, those of us who know we are guilty, know we are rebels against God, but know that Christ humbling himself to come and live the life in our place and dying in our death so that we might get his righteousness and he took our suffering, that is, those of us who love him for that 
are the church, and he has a particular love for his people. And he is the head of the church. When I look at the church, oftentimes I can be quite frustrated. I can be um, not very optimistic about the future of the church. I see corruption in the church. I see um, just a lack of boldness amongst believers, including myself. We're supposed to be the light of the gospel, and we're filled with sin. We're supposed to be um, bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth, and I'm afraid to tell my coworkers about Jesus. The, the future of the church doesn't look great when I look at those lens, when I look at you or I, when I think, man, we're going to do this thing. Well, maybe not, unless Jesus is the head of the church. This God who's ahead of all things has a particular love and care for the church, and he said he'll build his church, and he will use us in spite of our weakness, in spite of our brokenness. He came to die and live a perfect life and die for us to reconcile us to him, and he's not done. He hasn't stopped. He will continue to build his church because he's the head of the church and he loves his church. And so by God's grace, he is the head of the church and we can trust him. We can trust him because he is big and because he creates all things and he will continue to create through providence in and amongst his church. He's the, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That should shock us a little bit. We just read about this God that's the creator of all things. And then we read that he obviously had to die if he's the firstborn from the dead. Now, I'm sure most of us in here are Christians, and if you're not a Christian, you still have probably heard the gospel. Maybe you're familiar with it. We shouldn't become immune to it. The fact that we just read in these first three verses that this Jesus is God over all things, that he has infinite authority and power and majesty, and that he died. For what reason? He died for rebels. Those who were under him, he died for. If we look at our world, we know nothing of this authority. When you look at those who are in authority in this world, you see those who are under authority serving those in authority. That's not even necessarily wrong, but we see those under authority sacrificing for the good of those in authority. But not only that, but we see those in authority start to abuse and exploit those under their authority. There's a saying that um, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That may be true, but not here, my friends, not with this Jesus. He has absolute authority, and he's not corrupted. Not only is he not corrupted, but he has this humility that we cannot fathom, that we are all rebels. As, as humans in general, we are all rebels. But individually, you are rebels. I am a rebel against God. And he died. That makes no sense. That should make no sense. And so I pray that as we, as we understand our, our, our sin and we, under, we hear that Jesus rose from the dead, that we wouldn't just, yeah, I know that. But that we might understand this big God died for us and how beautiful that is, and how completely different that is than anything else we know in this world. So about the resurrection, he's the beginning. Jesus, he's the beginning, he's the firstborn from the dead. I don't think that's the same, that's the same word twice, that he was the first from the dead and he was the firstborn from the dead. Um, the beginning, I do think, means first. Like he was number one from the dead 
in true resurrection unto eternal life. We see in scriptures that uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead or Talitha from the dead. We see Elijah and Elisha, Elijah and Elisha, raised, both raised children from the dead. But they were raised with their same bodies and they went on to die again. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose eternally from the dead. And so his resurrection is the beginning. It's the first of the resurrection of the dead unto eternal life or eternal death. And the firstborn from the dead. As we discussed earlier, that word firstborn means ranks first. It means supreme. Jesus' resurrection was supreme. You and I who are in Christ will be raised from the dead and it will be glorious. But Jesus' resurrection is more glorious. It is supreme. I think the reason Paul says that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think the reason he says that is because Jesus rose himself from the dead. Jesus has the authority to raise himself from the dead in which you and I will never do. John 10, 17, 18, Jesus says, I lay my life down that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Now, to be sure, God the Father in Scripture is said to have raised Jesus from the dead. Later on in Colossians, God the Father raises, it says that the Father took part in raising Jesus from the dead. And the Scriptures say that the, Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit is what raised Jesus from the dead. So this is a thoroughly, thoroughly Trinitarian act. But Jesus had the authority and power to take part in his own resurrection in which you and I will not have. We had nothing to do with our own birth. We had nothing to do with our own new birth. We have nothing to do with being raised on the last day to eternal life with him. But Jesus did. And so his resurrection was the preeminent one so that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus, we see in these first three verses that he is preeminent over everything, that Jesus is the ruler over all things, and his resurrection completed him being preeminent in all things. Not only is he, is he ranked first in creation, but he ranks first in the new creation. For in all him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jonathan Owen says, when he took on him the form of a servant in our nature, he became what he had never been before. But he did not cease to be what he had always been in his divine nature. He who is God cannot ever cease to be God. So though Jesus came to be a man, he, he did not lose any of his godness and thus allowed him to be able to raise from the dead. He became a man so that the shadows of the lambs, bulls, and rams that were sacrificed for the payment of sin, they were just shadows. They didn't, they didn't take away sin. But he became a full man so that the righteous one would actually take away sin. And he was God because he could not lose his godness and allowed death to not be able to keep him. And he did all this to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So, one author and pastor 
has these uh, has these terms called um, sorry let me has these terms gospel in the air versus gospel in the ground. Many of us in in American evangelicalism are well aware with the gospel on the ground, which meaning Jesus died specifically for sinners at an individual level, that Jesus' death paid the, paid the, the debt owed by you and I as sinners so that we, we might be reconciled unto God. So we understand that Jesus' death paid for our individual reconciliation to God the Father. The gospel in the air is more of a meta-narrative look. It's a bigger look. And I think that's what these verses are, are kind of getting at. It's Jesus' death didn't only reconcile sinners by grace unto him, but it reconciles all things to him. When Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the earth and said that thorns and thistles would come from the earth, that, that work would be hard, that labor would be hard, that we would have enmity between us and God, that we would have war between each other, that there would be strife. We see since then tornadoes and natural disasters and things where the world does not feel at war or where the world feels at war. The world doesn't feel right. Romans 8 talks about even the, all creation groaning for reconciliation. I think this is what this is talking about. And the gospel on the ground to you and I is absolutely beautiful and we need to know that. And the gospel in the air of God reconciling all things is also beautiful and shows us the scope of what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross was to bring together all things and he will bring back creation into its rightful, into its rightful place and he will bring his people back into his rightful place. Now again, a lot of people take these verses and twist them into what they're not supposed to be. That all people might be saved. This is not teaching universalism that all people will be savingly reconciled unto him. We know that's not what Paul means because in two verses uh, down in verse 23, he he says that um, you'll be reconciled to him in order to present you holy and blameless and above, above recro- reproach if you continue in faith. So you can see that if you don't con- those who don't continue in faith, faith in Christ and hope in Him, won't be holy. They will have their blame and they will have reproach before Him. So it's not, this is not saying that no one will have reproach before God. God will reconcile all people unto Himself and those who love Him And those who put our faith in him will be reconciled to him in a glorious state of he will be our God and we will be his people forever with him. And we get to rejoice in that and praise in that. And those who run from God and continue to run from God and continue to war with God or ignore God, God's not going to allow that anymore. They will be reconciled to him because they will no longer be allowed to do those things that right now God is patiently, graciously allowing them to do in order that some of them still might repent. But there will be a final reconciliation. There will be a reconciliation where they are not allowed and they will be reconciled under God's wrath. And God will have wrath wrath for those who continue to war against him or ignore him. And I know in our culture that is hard to hear. 
Well, we just looked at this God who, is, who has all authority to do so. And it only makes sense that those who war against him would have instantly been put under and reconciled under his wrath. But this God came to die to serve those who rebelled against him. And he will reconcile all things, and that will be good and just. And those of us who love him will praise him for his patience, and we'll praise him for his justice. And we will praise him that this infinite God stooped down to love us and to show compassion and mercy to us, and we will be his people forever. And so if you don't know Jesus, if you have not put your faith in him, I ask you to repent of your sins and put your faith in him as the gracious, loving, patient God that has given you time to repent unto him and to be reconciled to him so you might be his people, so that he might rejoice over you and be your God and you could be his people. And for those of us that do know this God, I pray that our hearts don't just hear this and say, yes, I know that, I've heard this verse, I know these verses, but that the Holy Spirit would actually change our hearts to continue to walk in awe of him. That I think the, I think the Apostle Paul wanted the Colossians to know this because he wanted them to get those other things off the throne of their heart and put Jesus there. And I pray we would do that. I pray that what we think about as we go throughout our lives, we would see this good God and it would actually change us in order to want to walk in him and to allow him to take rightful ownership of our lives because of who he is. Not out of an obligation because he's a tyrant, but because this God loves us. And this God did not have to do any, any of this sacrifice, this humility, this love for us, this pursuing us, but he did. So I'd like to end just as we say, with Jude, our Lord's brother, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.